0: you pray with me if in fact father all that we might say or do both this day and every day would be unto you then i would pray that these words and the meditations and ruminations of our own heart would be acceptable that you would do a good work in our midst by the power of your spirit through what you've already accomplished in your son If we have heard it 10,000 times, help us to hear it again for the first time. And if we've never heard it before, help us not to miss what you have for us in it. In Jesus' name, amen. So when I was 10, I was in the Cub Scouts. And if you know anything about Cub Scouts, you know that there's this annual celebration, this annual event called the Pinewood Derby. Yes, oh, you've heard of it, right? Where... uh, you know, everybody in the pack of a given pack spends weeks, as I did, pouring over different plans, imagining the optimal aerodynamic profile of this block of balsa wood that I would then cut into this obviously perfect um, configuration and uh, do um, wind tunnel testing on it just to make sure that it was going to go well and then paint it and lacquer it and try to get the weights all just, just within the right limits of the, the Cub Scout um, Bible. And then you show up for the day of the race, and it's me and 40 other cars. And the air is thick with anticipation. (laughs) The air is thick also with anxiety. Because on a day like that, this thing is not just a thing. It's not just a block with four wheels on it that's gonna go down this, I don't know, 30-yard course. This is the thing that you've given your heart and soul to for a long time. In some ways, it is you. And you are out there. And you, along with 40 others, are all asking yourselves the same question. Does this thing have any more truth about physics and aerodynamics than anything else around here? Or is this going to be just nothing much? Now, maybe you don't think of it in those terms when you're 10, but you feel that even if you don't have words for that. And that, my friends, you might call this a stretch, I think is a wonderful metaphor for what it means to have faith in the 21st century. I would say to you, and I don't think it's a big stretch to argue, that when when you say, I believe in God... But you're, what you're making there is more than just some sort of intellectual statement. It's just more than this cons- concept, this abstraction. Yes, God, nod, right? You're talking about something that you're giving your heart, strength, soul, and mind to. It's something. And given the way in our day, when they're on any given street, in any given state, in any given country, there are a, to- a myriad, innumerable options of beliefs in a higher power, or alternatives to a higher power, there is something maybe inside of you that wonders, does this thing, for lack of a better word, to which I give my heart and soul, is there anything more to it than others, or is it nothing much in the end? Jamie Smith is a professor at Calvin College, and he wrote a book called How Not to Be Secular, In which he describes, what is it like to be in our day? It goes something like this. Faith is fraught. Confession is haunted by an inescapable sense of contestability. We don't believe instead of doubting. We believe while doubting. We're all Thomas now. Maybe that is not the same experience for everyone. Maybe that is an uneven way of characterizing what it means to believe, but I think it would not be a surprise to me if that was your definition of an experience. And the question is, what now? In a world in which we've just stood to our feet and sung from our lungs and made ourselves quiet before the Lord, how do we live by faith when we know in the back of our head that for every one of us, There are 6,000 others in this city that are still asleep. Isaiah is the book we've been listening to of late. And Isaiah is going to say something that I would argue is the highest thing that you can say about God. But that highest thing that you can say about God is the hardest thing to say in public in our day. And yet there's no, going, there's no getting around it when it comes to believing in the highest thing, even while you're acknowledging it to be also the hardest thing. And the question we want to ask ourselves is this, what is that highest thing that is also the hardest thing to say? Isaiah is going to lead us into that question from a very vast distance from us, both culturally and chronologically, and yet it's relevant. So what we're going to do is listen to him and, and kind of work, work, work our way through three ideas. What is that truth that's the highest thing we can say about God and yet the hardest thing? And what's the case for it? What is it and what's the case for it? Secondly, even if it's true, what does that mean for us? What does it mean to believe that highest yet hardest truth? And thirdly, even before God or anybody else might try to prove it to you, why would you want to believe it's true even before you believe that it is? What is that highest, hardest thing, and what's the case for it? What does that mean for us if it's true? And why would you want it to be true even before you knew it was or thought it was? We have a tall order before us, and it's only going to come through eight verses. Amazing. If you're able to stand, we're in Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43, starting in verse 8. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. Let them hear and say, It is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, who can turn it back? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. This is the unequivocal word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. Uh, I mentioned C.S. Lewis at the beginning of our worship service. He, as you may know, wrote hundreds of essays. And there was one essay he wrote back in the 40s entitled, God in the Dock, which is a Britishism for saying God on trial. And in that essay, which ended up becoming an anthology of essays that was titled God in the Dock, he, he tried to identify what was the major distinction between an ancient sensibility and a modern sensibility when it came to faith in God. And I would argue that the modern sensibility of 1940 is essentially the same as it is in 2019. And he put it like this. The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. In an earlier day, people would say or think to themselves without even being told so, they are accountable to God, whoever that God may be. But now, the seats changed. And now God is for some reason, in our minds, accountable to us. He has to fit our bill. He has to satisfy our expectations. That's our world. In this passage in Isaiah, it is an imaginary courtroom setting. And there are three witnesses that have all been brought in to give testimony to one theory, one claim, one question. And that question is this, what best accounts for how Judah ends up being exiled to Babylon and ends up being delivered from there only to return to their homeland? All right, for those of you just joining us, this passage has a historical context to it. And just to give you a brief and ill-suited review, Israel in this era, or, or, uh, 3,000 years ago, was a kingdom that was divided. The northern kingdom, known as Israel, gets exiled to the nation of Assyria during the Assyrian Empire in the 8th century B.C. The southern kingdom of Judah cozies up with the rising Babylonian Empire and ends up in time, 100 years later, getting exiled to Babylon. It's a nation divided, and then it's a nation exiled. But by this point in Isaiah, this nation is or is about to be freed from their Babylonian captivity so that they might return to their homeland of Israel. And everybody's going, what accounts for that unlikely scenario? And the Lord, through Isaiah, trots out three different witnesses to offer testimony to explain that historical phenomenon. And the first witness is Israel itself. And the question before Israel, can Israel account for why they're coming back? Is there something about Israel's might and virtue and esteem that would explain why they themselves would be respected and allowed to go back to their homeland? Well, we hear from the very first verse, it certainly isn't Israel's virtue that got them out, because listen to the way they're being characterized. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. Not exactly a scintillating reputation at that point. And it might touch off memories from what we spoke of back a long time ago when we were listening to Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah is first called into his prophetic ministry. What does God say to Isaiah? Hey, man, you're in. I want you to speak, but here's the deal. Everything you say, they will not listen. The prosperity gospel is not in your future. You will not have a megachurch. In fact, they're going to actually see if they can kill you for it. All right, sign me up. They heard without understanding. They saw without perceiving, it says in Isaiah chapter 6. Well, sounds like nothing much has changed, even by Isaiah 43. It's not them. It's not in them. It's not because God was so impressed with how they handled their time in captivity that he's like, you know what, good behavior, you get out early. It's not them. Okay, next witness. Who comes out next? The nations. In other words, anybody other than Israel. Can the nations, their, their prowess, their, their whatever interest they might have in compassion on Israel, does that account for it? Well, again, if you listen to the way it's put, there's an answer to their own question. All the nations gather together, the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. Let them hear and say it's true. In other words, he's saying can the nations account for why Israel would go back to their land? Well, for one thing, why would the nations even care? Israel is a gnat on the backside of the ancient Near East, meaning nothing. That's why it keeps getting jostled around and beat up and carted off into every which way they can, because they mean nothing to anybody that's forming an empire. So the nations don't have any really concern or care for that nor can they actually engineer situations of a geopolitical nature in such a way that Israel finds itself back in the land. So, it's not Israel. It's not the nations. Third witness. Who is it? God himself. He puts himself in the dock. He puts himself in the witness stand and asks what best accounts for why Israel, unlikely, hapless, harangued, haunted, hunted, Israel would be shown great calamity and disfavor and now all of a sudden, freed and delivered. And he answers that question there in verse 11. Why are they there? Why are they going back? I, I am the Lord. And besides me, there is no Savior. Boom. Mic drop. This is the point in the trailer when they play the bass drum. Boom. I, I am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no Savior. That, friends, in 2019, is the highest thing you can say of God, but in 2019, it's also perhaps also the hardest thing to say. What is the case that God makes for being able to say that about himself? It's really brief. It's got three points, and I'll be as brief as he is. First point is this. God has no predecessor. He has no successor. That's what you heard in the verse before. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Point two. Of all the other alternative deities and strange gods you might choose, I, the Lord who disclosed himself to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, he's preeminent. And that's what you heard in the verse after. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. You're my witnesses. Point two. And that's point two. Point three. I have no rival. He says there in verse 13, Henceforth I am he, there is none who can deliver from my hand. I work who can turn it back. That's who he is. That's why he can say, the reason that Israel, unlikely Israel, might be freed from the clutches of a Babylonian captivity, in fact, shown favor by, of all people, the rising Persian empire under the likes of somebody like Cyrus, who then is petitioned by someone in Israel to say, can we go back? And he says, go for it. God is saying, it's because of what I have done, not because of who Israel is, and not because of what the nations are doing, but because of what I have said. That's the highest thing you can say about God, is that the Lord who disclosed himself to Moses is God. All right, let's think about that for a second, shall we? If you're in the room today and you find all of what we're doing here today amusing, interesting, a nice cultural artifact of where we are in 2019, you might be saying to yourself, come on, man, these religious faiths up there, they're essentially just sort of doing the same thing, right? They're all kind of answering the same questions, right? Well, yes, they are answering similar questions, but they're not all giving the same answers. And I don't mean to insult your intelligence by referencing this other idea of a religion these days, but did you know? that on several recent censuses in Western countries, when you have the option of declaring what religion you are, 0.7% of people are now checking the word Jedi. In the 2001 census, 330,000 people in the United Kingdom said, Jedi. Isn't it cute? Right? And then the prequels came out, and then those numbers dropped. And then, because you understand, I'd lose faith in it too. And you hear that and you go, okay, they're being funny, but, you know, there's still some part of that, right? Because when you think about Yoda, Yoda as just sort of the embodiment of a Jedi wisdom, what does he represent? In many ways, he reflects many of what youth, many different faith traditions. He he is a person that demonstrates great wisdom and care and observational skills. He is someone that has everything to do with self-mastery and bravery but rewind the tape about Yoda sometime and there's one word you will never find in his vocabulary. You know what that word is? Love. Closest thing Yoda ever says to love is says, "Let go of anything that you're afraid to lose." That's Buddhist, friends. That's the idea of not attaching to yourself to anything or anyone that you might then suddenly be sucked down into the abyss of sorrow if you were to lose it. That's more Buddhism and Hinduism. So any anybody that checks Jedi on their census and then turns around and pledges to somebody their love in marriage, mm, in the words of Bib Fortuna, he's no Jedi. They ain't all the same. And you may go, all right, that's, that's all funny. But But what about, like, what... Why do you have to put such a premium on saying that God alone is the Lord? Why? Why can't we all just get along, right? Why do you have to do that? Well, it's a reasonable question. If you think that like, faiths are like tennis rackets, like the red one or the blue one, which shall I choose? And if you're thinking about faith like you're thinking about tennis rackets, then you're right. It's absolutely silly to go, my blue one is the best one. Why would I do that? But, you know, Faith is not simply a night set of ideas or a set of images or a set of rituals. Every faith tradition, wherever you're coming from, has some really vast implications for how you live. Let me give you one that really matters. If your faith tradition says forgiveness is central to your identity and another faith tradition does not, then that faith tradition that asks you to consider forgiveness, it better be true because it's hard to forgive. And if you're telling me that that's what it calls from me, then I can't just think of it as two tennis rackets or shampoos that I might get to select from a shelf. It matters. Not just because of its otherworldly ideas, but for its vast implications for very this-worldly responses. That's why you have to talk about it. All right, fine. They're not all saying the same thing. I grant that that All right, fine. It is a worthy question to consider, which might bear out truth in a way that we would give ultimate allegiance to it. But here's the third question. Why is God being so vocal about letting everybody know that he is the Lord? Is he insecure? Does he have an ego he's afraid of being bruised? No. Why... What, you have to figure out what's the motivation that for God to even say this here and to harp on it so much in this passage. I'll tell you one fat reason. Because Israel and every single human on this planet has one single phenomenon that we all are liable to. And that is if we don't choose God, we'll find one for ourselves and make it into a God. Israel's history is is a sordid history of being presented with God as the one who loves them, delights in them, who is their king, and it's within a matter of moments that they're in the mode of, what have you done for me lately? And isn't this golden calf rather pretty? They move on. They switch horses. They turn to other allegiances, and they make that which is not a God into a God. And you know what? We hear that, and go, that's bizarre. But in a minute, you'll see no, that's actually me, it's actually you. See, everybody's religious. Some of us admit it. Everybody has a theory of why somebody or themselves has dignity. Everybody has a theory about why you should show respect or kindness or whatever it might be to somebody else. And every one of those theories is at some point an article of faith because you can't prove it and therefore everybody's religious, and therefore everybody clings to a version of truth that requires a little bit of faith. And God is here out to tell us both what is the highest and hardest thing because he's out to tell us because we're going to pick something else if we don't pick him. Which gets us into the second thing that Isaiah is out to do first. Not just tell us what is that highest thing that we can say that's the hardest thing and what the case is for that. What does that mean for us if it's true? What does it mean for you and for me if, in fact, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the Lord? The first thing it comes down to is how you think about yourself. Maybe not the first thing, but, but certainly thereafter. I'm talking about your identity. Because Isaiah talks about your identity from what God says about your identity if, in fact, he is the Lord. And what does he say about your identity if he is the Lord? It's what he says there in verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, my servant whom I've chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. If he is the Lord, then you are not his minion. If he is the Lord, then he is not someone that we simply bow our heads and just sort of say, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. If he is the Lord, then he is meant to be known And to be known by him. And to know that he delights in you. And if you believe that he delights in you, then you'll do whatever anybody that delights in you will ask of you. That's why you become a servant if you are chosen to know. Look, uh, my wife and I um, cried through the whole Mr. Rogers thing over the weekend. If you haven't seen it, you should. But when somebody finally asks him, why do you do what you do? It was really simple, and it's at the top of his head. Why did Mr. Rogers do what he did? Because he wanted every kid to know that they're precious. If evolution is the only thing you think is true, then nothing is precious. Everything is just remarkable. But if God is alive, and you and I derive from him, then precious is an appropriate category to apply to everyone, and especially children. You use the word chosen, that communicates the idea of preciousness. And when you know you're precious, you'll do anything for anybody. You'll be their servant, and when you're their servant, you'll speak very highly of them. You'll be witnesses. What does it mean if God is the Lord? It changes the way you think of yourself. You don't belong to yourself. Your greatest identity is not who you love. Your greatest identity is not where you're from. Your greatest identity is not who you voted for. Your greatest identity is who you belong to. It doesn't prove anything, but it certainly changes the way you think about yourself. And because that's true of you if he is Lord, then it means you have to start somewhere really important if you're going to believe that identity. Because as I alluded to just a few minutes ago, there is something that every human does that has the great capacity to distort your sense of identity, and that is by choosing something to define you, something that is not worthy of defining you. In verses 9 and 12, you hear Isaiah refer to the nations. Gather them up, put them in the dock, give me your testimony. And then later he says, you know what? There's no, I have been the God from ever when there was no, quote, strange gods among you. That word strange gods there is referring to what? It's referring to alternative deities, alternative identi- versions of who is God over all things or if there is no God over all things. And in that day, you could have your pick of them. Um, uh, Nishnu, Nergal, Utu, Tiamat. You know, you had your run of them. Just pick one. You had your gods. And in that day, we think, man, that's a lot of gods to choose from. But you know what? You've got a few too. I have a few too, and I can turn any number of things into a god without even knowing it. And if I'm going to live into the identity that God gives me by virtue of his lordship, then I've got to wrestle with some of these things that I've turned into alternative gods. What are those? Here's a book I recommend to you that came out a few months ago by a guy named David Zoll, and it's called Seculosity. Yes, he coined the term. It's the idea of bringing secularity and religiosity under the same banner. And its book is premised on this idea. The belief was, if we could get rid of God, we could get rid of guilt and get rid of anything, talking about good or bad, being righteous or not righteous. It's just, if we could just get rid of all that religious talk, we would be done with all that, and we could just sort of live our lives and be happy. And then reality sets in, and we realize, no, It's not when we get rid of God of the universe that everything changes, because then we just pick some other God to choose. Some other God that we will either fail or flatter. And yet every single one that we will choose will lead us to a different kind of perdition. Let me give you several examples that he argues. How about one being your performance? How you do everything you do. You and I can jump on that and make that the one thing that defines us. And if we love that most, you know what we've signed ourselves up for? A point at which we think life is not worth living. What about romance? There would be a much more truncated literary tradition in this planet without the belief that love is a many splendid thing, right? He says, and surely it is. But if you make romance the biggest thing you can, and boy... There's too many love songs to argue that we've done something otherwise. You make romance the most important thing to you, you will be disappointed. Technology is going to steal your peace. Politics is going to leave you powerless. Productivity and your work, if you make that, and you and I can make that thing, So important to us that if we lose it, we lose everything. If you let work and your productivity become your God, then you have signed yourself up for stepping onto a treadmill of self-justification that you will never be able to get yourself off of unless you find some other reason to live for some other way. Tell me you and I don't have idols. Tell me you and I don't have other strange gods. We do. We do. I do. I do. And therefore, what it means to believe this highest yet hardest thing is to believe that we need to wrestle deeply with the things that we have come up with as alternatives to his lordship, that if we let them define our identity as we are prone to do, we will end up with less than what we started. So far, God has asserted the fact that he is Lord, and he has provided us the implications of how we find our identity and how we set aside alternatives to it. And neither of those prove that he's true. Neither of them do. But even before we prove that he's true, we've got to ask one last question. Why would we want him, in fact, to be Lord and none else? Why would we want him to be true? Because if, if, if we don't really want that to be true, then, then who cares if it is? And to make this last point, to land this plane, I refer you back to the last two verses of the text, which Isaiah brings us back into the historical context of the moment. He says there in the last two verses of the text, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Now that, you might say, is one more plank in his case for why he's Lord. I'm the creator. I know you better than anybody. I'm your redeemer. It was at my cost that you're free. I'm your holy one. You want to know it's good, true, and beautiful? Walk in my way. And I'm your king. I will lead you and I will shepherd you like a king ought to. But what's all this stuff about Babylon and the Chaldeans? Friends, you and I have no concept of the Babylonian empire unless you're a historian. That thing lasted 1,500 years, five times as long as America has even been in existence. It reached all the way from Iraq to Egypt into Libya. The square miles of the Babylonian Empire for 1,500 years should make us all go, wow. And Israel gets swept up into its path, its imperialistic campaign, to be the biggest guy on the block, the king of the hill. And it gets swallowed up by it. And so for the very idea that in this moment, Israel is being delivered from the Babylonian clutches back into the world, you know what that means? Israel had been hunted and haunted by this imperialistic force for centuries. And now they were free. And that's a little historical recap of what's befalling Israel in that moment. And that's why God is entitled to go by the name King if he can free a people from the one thing that's been hunting and haunting them for centuries. I bring up that little historical moment to make this point. You and I are haunted and hunted. Not necessarily, and not even mainly, by forces external to ourselves. You and I are haunted and hunted by four things. What are those four things? The guilt of regret, the anxiety of our own inadequacy, the despair over lovelessness, and the fear of death. We grapple with all of those. We've all got stuff that stings us when we say, I cannot believe I did that. I cannot believe I keep doing that. You and I are all wondering, what is it going to be like to die? And fearing that, maybe. You and I are all thinking about, when we talk about a loneliness in this world, what that really means is there's a lovelessness that's plaguing our culture like no other culture has ever experienced. All of those things come in, and I would like to argue to you that it is Jesus, the Christ, who is the king, who answers every one of those things that you and I are hunted and haunted by like no one else can or should why do I believe that? There's an article this week that I've put in the Sermon Resources page that you should read this afternoon as part of your Sabbath. It's about two churches not far from here, one in Kannapolis, just northeast of Charlotte, and another church about an hour from there in Greensboro. One is a predominantly white church, one is a predominantly black church, and three years ago, they merged. An hour away, they share pulpits They share resources, they share friendships, they share mission efforts, they're together. And for three years, they've been part of a same church network. An author went there earlier this year. Her name is um, Batya Ungar Sargon, and she's Jewish. And she wrote this article in the New York Review of Books called A Tale of Two Churches. And she went there because she marveled. Marveled that two churches of a predominantly ethnic character would look past those differences and decide that we're going to be part of the same family, the same church, the same resources, the same budget, all that stuff. She marveled that especially in North Carolina, where in that region of the world racism was so prevalent that to imagine anybody looking past each other, looking past those differences, was just unheard of to her. And she says about halfway through the essay about what distinguishes what she saw there from her own background in Judaism, and she said this. In Judaism, we don't have the concept of grace. We aren't born steeped in sin, but in a neutral state. You're worthy of God's love as long as you follow his commandments. And when you fail and sin, you can earn back his love with teshuva, or repentance. Was there a form of repentance that could restore us and make us worthy of love, worthy of pride as a nation, or was the sin of our history too grave? Would only grace do, and if so, who could grant it? Towards the end of the worship services at one of those churches, she was invited to come down, and they prayed over her in the middle of that service. And at the, her own telling, she broke down in tears, saying, I wanted to believe that there was something out there that was possible to mend the kind of relationships that this merger was a representation of. What can be the thing that sends to flight That which hunts you and haunts you. The one who made himself a servant. The one who came and died for those who were spiritually blind and deaf. The one who came at his cross and put to flight, not necessarily our experiences for the fear of death, not necessarily or or, or even Um, On on a preliminary sense, at at the beginning of our pilgrimage with him, it doesn't necessarily change the experience of our fear of guilt or fear of death or the guilt of regret or the despair of lovelessness, but it certainly changes the reasons for them. And if he gives us a different story into which he writes us himself by his own work and his own kindness and his own blood, then yes, the experience of regret, the experience of despair, The experience of guilt. The experience of fear. Those things can change by the power of his spirit. And it is not because, with all due respect to Miss Sargon putting it, because you're worthy of his love or that you follow his commandments. It's not because you can earn his love back with repentance. No, your repentance is in response to a love that has not changed. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance, Paul would say, with all due respect to his fellow Jew. That's the gospel. It is grace that allows two churches who might otherwise prefer to stay at arm's length from one another to instead become a family. It is because of grace that you and I might actually stare all of those things that haunt and hunt us in the face and believe that we have another story to turn them back. The gospel, as David Zoll would say, is this. People only truly change when they no longer feel like they have to in order to be loved. Jesus is saying, you don't have to change in order for me to love you, but because I love you, I will never leave you the same. It's the gospel. What do you do with that? If you are of a notion that the whole idea of Jesus as Lord being kind of something that's sort of a throwback day, I would invite you to reconsider. That in fact, that story may be something you would want to believe, and though that doesn't prove that it is true, it also doesn't prove that it's a man-made notion. This story comes for us. This story holds us. This story tells us something It might even give us the courage to say what is hard with courage. If you've never heard the invitation, hear it now. And if you're wrestling with a God that is no God, let me simply remind you that he alone is God. Let's pray. Father, whatever it is that we perhaps awoke to this morning that we are afraid of, or that we are prone to let our anger bubble over ever into resentment or something else. Would you help us to believe that you are our light and our salvation? Whom shall we fear? That you are the stronghold of our life? Of whom shall we be afraid? To this we give ourselves. To this we want to believe. Help us in our unbelief. Help us to be known. And help us to know that your delight is real. In Jesus' name, amen.